Have you ever been deceived? Has someone ever deceived you? Not just tricked you, but actually deceived you and, and caused you to make a decision based upon their deception that brought negative consequences into your life. Years ago, one of my a pastor I, I know told a story that really illustrates the power deception can have to, to cause problems. He He's from Oklahoma, but he was pastoring around Van Buren, Arkansas. And he was out and about, had been out doing visitation one night or doing a Bible study with someone. It was late. He had stopped to get him some gas and a drink on his way home. And there was a, a teenage boy at the gas station. He was kind of looking kind of confused and disoriented. Uh, and, and so Charlie went over to talk to him and see if he could help him and, and what he needed. And the kid, I, I guess, sensing Charlie was kind of a compassionate sort of guy, began to tell him a story. He was a runaway. He was from Salisaw, Oklahoma. Uh, and he had run away to Van Buren, Arkansas to see his girlfriend. And his girlfriend had broken up with him now. And he was here on the street. And he didn't have a way back home. He, he missed his parents. And he really wanted to go home. And he, he wished he could get back home somehow. And, and so Charlie said, I, you know, I'm, I've got time. I'll, I'll take you over to Van Buren and Salisaw and all that far apart. So he thought he would just take him over there. So he took him to Van Buren, took him to Salisaw, drove to the neighborhood, dropped him off at a house, and the kid walked up and he drove off. And Charlie got to bed late thinking he had done a good thing. About 11 or 12 o'clock that night, doorbell rings. And when he answers, it's the police. And, and they ask him, they say, excuse me, did you take a boy and go across the state lines to Oklahoma? Charlie said, yeah, he was a runaway, and I was taking him back home. And the police said, no, he's from Van Buren, and he was running away to his girlfriend's house in Oklahoma. And you had illegally transported a teenager and a minor across state lines. We need you to come down to the police department and answer some questions for us. And so Charlie spent the majority of his night at the police station answering questions, convincing them he was not trafficking children or anything along those lines, that he had been deceived. Uh, and, and it caused him a, a good portion of distress in that day and the next day. Frustrated him, made him angry. He said he drove around for weeks around Van Buren where he was at, looking, hoping to see the boys that would come home because he was going to confront him. And he was going to give him three minutes to make it right with Jesus, and then he was going to send him to meet Jesus right there on the spot. But, but that deception caused him problems. That deception brought difficulties into his life that, that didn't have to be there. And that's what deception does, right? There's a difference between deception and a joke. Deception and a trick. Deception is lying with an intent to cause problems, an intent to lead people to do things they wouldn't normally do. And when we are deceived, it can cause deep problems in our lives. And that's what happens to the Israelites in our chapter in Joshua 9. So if you look at verse 1, it says... And it came to pass on all the kings, which were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills, and in the valleys, and in the coast of the great sea, over against Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, heard thereof. They gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel in one accord. So, Joshua's come in. They have taken down two towns. They have won decisive, massive victories. So, a lot of the other nations in the in the in the promised land, all these other city-states, 
they decide these, this, this invasion is serious. They really are coming for all of us. It does not appear anyone can stop them. Our common enemy should make it so we should be allies. We should come together, and rather than let him pick us off one by one, we should come together as one mighty army and move out and attack. So they make that accord. And we'll talk about them actually next week. However, another city-state, they take a different approach. Look at verse 3. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done unto Jericho, to Ai, they did work wildly. Now, I like the word wildly. That, that word is translated in different ways in some of the other translations. Um, the New King James says they worked craftily. The ESV says they worked cunningly or with cunning. But I prefer the King James wildly. Just one, because it's fun to say, but also because it's a very similar to what we're warned about the devil in Ephesians 6.11. Right? We're warned against the wiles of the devil. And this is important for two reasons. These two words have the same basic meaning. They both refer to plot schemes, methods, and strategies intended to deceive. Right? So more than tricks, more than something that's just a, a joke, it's intended to deceive people for a specific purpose. Second reason this is important is the same person is behind both. Right? The same person we're warned against in Ephesians 6, his wiles, is the one who has led the Gibeonites to work wilily with the Israelites. Now, Satan is not explicitly mentioned in this passage. I'll acknowledge that. But consider this. The Bible says Satan is a liar and the father of lies. The Bible says Satan is the one who deceives the whole world. The Bible says Satan is the one who through craftiness corrupts the mind of believers, turning them away from Jesus. The Bible says Satan is the one who transforms himself into an angel of light and his ministers into ministers of righteousness in order to deceive and destroy. So make no mistake, this plan to deceive the Israelites, to cause them to do something God has said they are not supposed to do, it is demonically inspired. It is satanic in nature. It was intended to derail the people of God so they cannot move forward and do all the things God wants them to do. So here is their plan. They make as if they were ambassadors and they had old sacks upon their asses, and wine bottles were old and rent and bound up, and old shoes clouded upon their feet, and old garments upon them, and all the bread and their provision was dry and moldy. So here's what they did. They picked out some people, and they said, you're going to go, and you're going to say you're an ambassador from a long way away. And in order to sell this deception that you're an ambassador from a long way away, you're going to get ratty clothes on. Right? You're going to wear clothes that look like they're all worn out. Like you have been riding just for months and months and months to get here. And you're going to get your provisions. You're going to get an old sack that has holes in it. And it's all worn out. And it's patched up. And it looks like it's just been used to death. You're going to get shoes. And you're going to get shoes that have holes in them. Shoes that are broke down. Shoes that are all worn out. So that it looks like you have just worn them to death. And then we're going to give you moldy bread. And you're going to carry that. And it's going to look like you have had this bread so long and been traveled so far 
That your provision is all rotted and has wasted away. So that's the plan. And the wineskins also would be dried up and cracking and leaking. And, and everything would just make it appear they had come from really far country. Now the reason this mattered. The reason it mattered where they were from. is The Israelites were expressly forbidden from making any treaties with the people of the land. Right? Instead of making treaties with them, they were to completely destroy them. They were not to show them any pity. They were not to make any marriages with their people. They were to destroy the altars of their gods. And they were to essentially wipe the knowledge of their false gods from the face of the earth. And they were to do this because the Israelites were holy unto God. And by forming an allegiance with the people of the land who worshipped these idols, it would make them unholy. It would make them defiled. It would divide their allegiance. And it would cause them to be, it would cause these people to be a snare unto them. They would be like thorns in their eyes, some places it describes. And as they intermingled in marriage, it would cause greater problems than this. God knew making any sort of treaty with these people would be a distraction for His people. It would prevent them from being fully devoted to doing the will of God and it would hinder them from going forward. So that's their plan. Verse 6, they get on their ratty clothes, they get on their horse, they get their moldy bread, and they ride. They go to Joshua, verse 6. They came to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal and said unto him and to the men of Israel, we come from a far country, make a treaty with us. Right? So they come and they tell him, hey, we're from a long ways off, Make a treaty with us. Now in verse 7, we're told, the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, so we're told they're Hivites even though they have not identified themselves as such. And, and what's happening is, the author of Joshua at a later date is letting us in on the secret Joshua does not yet know. Joshua and the elders are at this point holding peace talks with the enemies of God. Right? They are doing something God has expressly said not to do. Now, lest we think the Gibeonites aren't as bad as the others, notice they are called Hivites in verse 7. And notice also in verse 1, who had joined in league together in order to rout the invasion of the promised land. The Hivites were part of it. These people were most definitely a part of the enemies of God. Now, Joshua and the elders are wary at first. And they said, peradventure you dwell among us. How shall we make league with you? And so the people began to try to, to sell their, their, their deception again. And they said unto Joshua, we are thy servants. Who are you? Joshua asked. Where are you from? And they said unto him, from a very far country, really far away, so far away you probably never would have heard of it. And thy servants, again notice, we're thy servants. We are come... Because the name of the Lord thy God, for we have heard the fame of him and all he did in Egypt. And all he did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan. To Sihon, king of Heshbon. To Og, king of Bashan, which was at Ashtaroth. Right, so here's the first plea. We're from a long ways off, really far away. And we heard your God was awesome. Really, probably more awesome than our God. 
So we want to make a treaty with you. We heard about his works and his power and what he has done. Seriously, look at our stuff, they say. Take, take our, our victuals, which we had in the journey. And they said, take victuals and go through the journey and go to meet them unto them. Uh, we are your servants, therefore make a league with us. This, our bread, we took hot. Right? So they took it right out of the oven. And now look at it. It's, it's moldy. That these bottles of wine which are filled were new, and behold, they are rent. These are garments, and our shoes are become old by reason of the very long journey. They're, they're just really selling it. We, we've come from a long way. We came from a long way because we heard about the greatness of your God. Our, our food was brand fresh. Our, our clothes were right off the rack. Our shoes were factory new. Everything we had was brand new. And now look at it. It is all worn out. It is all moldy. Just can't you see? I mean, think how far we must have come to have worn out our shoes and our clothes and our bread like this. Just take us at our word. We came from a long way. Make a treaty with us. We see in verse 14, the men took of their food and ask not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. So here's what they did. The elders examined the food and they reasoned within themselves. It's pretty old. It's pretty moldy. Clothes are really worn out. I mean, look at that. You, you and I, we can, we can tell. Them are some worn out clothes. That is some moldy bread. And, and, and they said they... They looked with their eyes and they made a decision based on what made sense to them. They made a decision based upon what they could conclude with their five senses. They, they sought it, they looked, and they said this is the most reasonable conclusion. Is they're, they're telling the truth. But they were not telling the truth. It was the wrong conclusion they made. And it could have been prevented, but they did not seek counsel at the mouth of God. They didn't go to God and say, hey, should we, should we take them at their word? Can we make fellowship with them? Can we make a treaty with them? Now, you may think that's a simple thing, but it, it's really not. That's a big deal. Right? When Joshua was being trained, Joshua was being prepped to take over. He had been explicitly told by God through Moses. That he was to seek counsel from God before making these kinds of decisions. He knew he was supposed to ask God. He knew he was supposed to say, God, what do I do? Now, listen. God had spoke to Joshua. All through this book, our study, we have seen God speak to Joshua. God tell Joshua. So it's not like where we struggle to hear from God, where they were. God spoke to Joshua in his ear and he knew it was God. And he did not seek counsel from God. Joshua and the Israelites, the leaders said, we really don't need God's advice. We can, we can with our own eyes, we can see that. We don't need God for that. We can just make the decision ourselves. So in verse 15, they, they made peace with him. And they made a league with him. And they let them live. And the prince of the congregation swear. Unto them. So they made this treaty. 
And, and they made it unknowingly. They had no idea these were actually their enemies. They had been deceived. How big of a deal is this? Well, in verse 16, it tells us, came to pass the end of three days after they had made a league with them, they heard they were their neighbors, and they dwelt among them. And the children of Israel journeyed and came unto their city on the third day. And their cities were Gibeon and, and the other cities there. And they smote them not, because the prince of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And the congregation murmured against the princes. So let's stop there. They heard. I don't know how they heard exactly. They began to kind of realize, we may have made a mistake. And so they traveled for three days. And they, they found them. And they didn't kill them because they had made a treaty. Now, you think, okay, they made the treaty in deceit. Surely they can break it. But they couldn't. See, they'd invoked God in this treaty. God was a party to their treaty because they were a part of the people of God. And this treaty was therefore unbreakable. They could not break it. This treaty was so sure, in fact, that hundreds of years later, that when Saul was king, he violated this treaty by killing some of the Gibeonites in response to this deception here. His killing of the Gibeonites in response to this deception brought the judgment of God upon the entire nation. And there was a three-year famine. And the Bible explicitly says because Saul had put the Gibeonites to death. The judgment of God was only lifted after the house of Saul had been judged for the murder of the Gibeonites. They could not break the treaty. They were now in league with the enemy that God had told them to destroy, to not pity. Now they couldn't make a treaty with him, but they didn't have to be friends. So they it says in verse 20, we'll let them live, lest the wrath, really the wrath of God is what he's talking about, be upon us because of the oath we swear unto them. And the princes say unto them, let them live, but let them be hewers of wood and drawers of water into the congregation, as the princes had promised them. And Joshua called for them, and he spake unto them, saying, Wherefore have you beguiled us, saying, We are from far away when you dwell among us? Why did you deceive us so we didn't kill you? Is kind of what he's saying. Now therefore you're cursed. None of you shall be freed as bondmen, but hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua, and they said, Because you were going to kill us. It was told us. How that the servants of the Lord thy God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land, to destroy the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore we were sore afraid of our lives because of you, and we have done this thing. Now behold, we are in thine hand, and as it seemeth good unto good and right unto thee to do to us. And so he did unto them. He delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel, and they slew them not. And Joshua made them that day hewers of wood, drawers of water for the congregation, and the altar of the Lord, even unto this day in the place in which he would choose. Now for the Gibeonites, this is a win-win situation. Right? No, they're, they're not necessarily free, but they get to live. Huzzah. Good for them. And, and there's, a, there's a principle here. Any compromise we make with the enemy is always a win for the enemy. Right? No matter how good a deal we think we negotiate with the enemy, when we compromise with him, he always wins. Any compromise we give to our enemy is a win for him. 
So here's the result of the Gibeonites' deception. Israel had violated God's commandment by making a treaty with the enemy. There was now a part of the promised land they could not occupy because they had to let the Gibeonites live. There was murmuring among the nation over the treaty. There was some question about the validity of the wisdom of the leaders of Israel because they had, made, they had compromised, because they had been deceived. And in chapter 10, we're going to see they're going to have to fight this coalition forces because the coalition hears the Gibeonites made a treaty with them. That's a big city. There's great warriors there. Let's just go kill them. And as the coalition forces descend on the Gibeonites, they send a message to Joshua and they say, Hey, remember we made a league? They're all coming to kill us. You need to come fight for us. You know, the lesson there is, when we compromise with the enemy, we always have to defend something that's wrong at some point. Any compromise we make with the enemy eventually results in us having to defend something that is wrong. Always. Now, here's the, the lessons for us in this chapter. Gibeonites still exist today. Gibeonites are still a part of our world today. They still seek to deceive people today. They, Gibeonites still seek to hinder us from moving forward following Jesus. Now, Gibeonites have, have modernized in our day. So there's not a lot of moldy bread or worn out wineskin, but the same method that is generally the same. Gibeonites encourage us or others to do something contrary to God's will by appealing to our natural senses while discouraging us or others from seeking guidance from God or His Word. Let me say that again. Gibeonites encourage us to do something contrary to God's will by appealing to our natural senses while discouraging us from seeking guidance from God or His Word. So let me give you some example of some Gibeonites in our day. Who encourages kids to get drunk, to do drugs, to sleep around, to send naked selfies, to rebel against their parents? Well, Gibeonites do, of course, and they appeal to the natural senses, right? Everybody gets drunk. I mean, look around. Can it be that bad? Who encourages husbands or wives to have an affair? Well, Gibeonites do, and they appeal to the natural senses. You deserve to be happy. You, you don't deserve to have to live like that. God wants you to be happy. Who encourages people to be open to other religions and all forms of non-Christ-centered spirituality? Gibeonites do. Right? Come on! Surely you can't really believe Jesus is the only way. Look at this person over here who's a Muslim, a Hindu, a Jehovah's Witness, or a Mormon. Look how good a people they are. Surely that's an acceptable path to God just like what you believe. Who encourages people to live for their best lives now? Gibeonites do. Because the Bible tells us to lay up treasure in heaven. Not on the earth. But the Gibeonite says, look at what you've got. Seize the day. YOLO. Do what you will do. Be happy in the moment. Who seeks to legitimize pride and selfishness as virtues instead of vice? Gibeonites do. And they appeal 
to the natural. You're wonderful. You deserve it. Make time for your self-care. Self-care, sister. Self-care, brother. Who seeks to convince people kids are going to be kids as a way to justify teenage rebellion and immorality? Gibeonites do. Don't you remember what it was like when you were a teenager? Gosh, you've just gotten old in a fuddy day. Right? You turned out okay. Who seeks to justify sin by saying love is love or you're just born that way? Gibeonites do. Who tells Christians they don't need to deny themselves, take up their crosses in order to follow Jesus? Gibeonites do. In, in both of those cases, the Gibeonite appeals to the natural. How can it be wrong if that's just who they are? Right? No, take up your cross, deny yourself? Come on. I mean, yeah, you person probably should have some religion in their life, but you don't want to get carried away with it. You've you got to be balanced. I, I tell you what, if you're talking about devotion to Jesus and you're listening for a Gibeonite, listen for the word balance. Because the Gibeonite will always try to talk you out of severe devotion to Jesus by saying, you have to have balance. And that's just a Gibeonite term, meaning, doesn't this make more sense to your natural sense? Don't, no, don't look at your Bible. Don't, don't seek God. Make sense of it by yourself. Who tells Christians they don't need the church? Gibeonites do. But who, who is it that says, well, you can just be you and Jesus. You don't need the church. You don't need the fellowship of believers. You don't need to gather. You can worship God at the park, in the woods, on the lake. You can worship God at home, in your car. You don't need the church. Who says that? The Gibeonites do. Who seeks to discourage Christians from evangelizing? Because they're just good people and I'm sure they're going to heaven. The Gibeonites do. Right? The Gibeonites do because they say again, look, they're good people, they're kind, they, they love their spouses. Surely, surely that person's going to heaven. No, they don't believe in Jesus, but they're going to heaven, I'm sure of it, aren't you? Doesn't that make sense? It's a Gibeonite. That is a Gibeonite phrase. And I could go on and on all day. But I'm sure you get the idea. Gibeonites abound in our world and they abound in our day. And they will do all they can to convince us of their lies. Gibeonites will try to lead us astray. They will derail us, if we believe their lies, from moving forward following Jesus. Rather than moving forward following Jesus, we will take a detour. Jesus does not intend for us to take and these detours will either slow us down, they will prevent us from moving forward at all, or they will bring disastrous consequences into our life. So how do we guard against the Gibeonites? Two quick ways. Know and do the truth. One of the primary means of preventing from being deceived is to know what's true. There are so many ways the enemy can lie in order to deceive. You, you, we can't. 
we can't study to know what's not true. Rather, what we have to do is study to learn what is true. Think about it like, like math. I hate to use math illustration, but it's a good illustration here. Kathy, you teach math, don't you? When you teach math, do you say 2 plus 2 is not 1? 2 plus 2 is not 2. two plus, and then, then just go through all the numbers that 2 plus 2 is not. Or do you just say 2 plus 2 is 4? Right? You don't spend all the time telling them what it's not because once they know what 2 plus 2 is, then they can easily recognize what 2 plus 2 is not. It's anything that is not 4. It's the same when we're seeking to know the truth. If I want to keep from being deceived by the Gibeonites, I have to know what's true. And as long as I know what's true, I will recognize the lie when it's spoken. But how do we know the truth? Well, we have to study the truth. Jesus said to those Jews which believed in him, if you abide or if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. Continue. is how we are in the word. It, it, it pictures, I think most translations will say abide. But it pictures to basically make the place our home. Can you imagine being in the word so much that the word is almost like your home? I mean, it, it would picture... We're in the Word so much that if someone were to say, well, where's, where's Job? I don't know, he's probably out reading his Bible. That's what he does. Every time you turn around, Job's got his Bible up, he's reading it. That's the picture of a Bible there, or continue. That we are in the Word that much, that we make it our home, we, we study, we learn, we put forth effort, we're constantly. Like, this is more than reading a version devotion. And, and I read lots of version devotions. That this is more than listening to a sermon. And I listen to lots of sermons. This is more than reading a Christian book. And, and I read lots of Christian books. But none of those are knowing and doing the truth. None of those are what we're to abide in. What we're to continue in. We are to continue in the truth. The Word of God. But, knowing the truth only makes us free if we do the truth. Right? Knowing someone is a Gibeonite and knowing they're giving me Gibeonite deception is only helpful if I choose not to give in to the Gibeonite deception. The Gibeonite says, no, you don't have to take up your cross. Deny yourself in order to follow Jesus. Live for yourself. Do whatever you want to do. I think Jesus just wants you to be happy. Now, I've read the Bible. I know that's a lie. I know Jesus said, I must deny myself. I must take up my cross. And I must follow Him if I'm to be His. But knowing that only helps. If I tell the Gideon, I, no, that's not true. No, that's not true. I, I, that's your, your lie. If I say, oh, gosh, okay, let's just go on and we do our own thing. Knowing the truth has to help. So it's one thing. We have to, to know the truth for sure. To know the truth, we have to continue in the truth. But beyond knowing the truth, 
We do have to do the truth. When we recognize the Gideonite deception, we have to say that's a lie. And we have to reject it and push it out of our life. Second, we have to seek God for wisdom. We have to pray. If you're regular in our church, I'm sure you're surprised I say we need to read our Bibles and pray. But that's what we need to do. We need to read our Bibles and pray. I read a statistic preparing for this sermon that I hope is not true for our church at the very least. I said the average Christian prays less than three minutes a day. Man, if that's true, we're in a world of hurt. I mean, there's just no, no wonder the Gibeonites have such an influence in the American church today if we're not praying any more than that. Pastor, days gone by, named Alan Redpath said, it seems to take us a long time to learn the lesson that collective prayer always leads to trouble. And it destroys the spirit of discernment. Neglect of prayer always suggests pride in our own judgment, which is fatal. I mean, it was lack of prayer that ultimately led to their downfall. Joshua knew the truth, didn't he? He knew they weren't supposed to make a league with Hivites. He just didn't know they were Hivites. But if he had prayed, if he just said, God, what's going on here? Are we really supposed to believe God wouldn't have told him when God tells him so many other things all throughout the book? I mean, in the next chapter, Joshua is going to stand up in front of the army and say, Sun, stand still. And God is going to make the sun stand still and he's going to rain hailstones down on the enemies and kill the bad guys. Is a God who answers Joshua's prayer that way really going to be like, I don't know, man, you better make your own choice. Do what you think is right. Of course not. Of course not. Joshua's lack of prayer led to this terrible decision. Our lack of prayer removes the ability to discern what is God and what is not God so often from our life. So we pray and we ask God. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not and it shall be given to him. Let him ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a Wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. Now, we don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to quick hit on this passage. One, if you lack wisdom, ask of God, and He gives to all. That's great. Generously. He gives to all generously. If we ask, God will give us. And, and it says he, he upbraideth not, which means it doesn't make Him angry. I had a, a squad leader and his platoon sergeant when I was the 101st Airborne Division. And he hated me. Clearly the man had poor choices in life, but he hated me. So I would go to him and I would say, Sergeant Keeler, do I need to do this or do I need to do that? And his response was, Ross, are you stupid? Or are you just trying to make me mad? I don't know, there's no right answer to that question. Right? I hated going to that man to ask a question. I would just about... Choose and take a, I mean, I was going to take a beating no matter which way it went. I would just choose and go on that way. God's not like that is the point. When we go to God and say, God, are these Gibeonites? Is this what, is this from you or is this something we should not do? God's not going to go, what are you, stupid? 
Are you just trying to make me mad? No. He gives to all generously and He upbraideth not. He, he gives. But we have to ask and we have to ask in faith. Now here's a key part about asking in faith and not wavering. Asking in faith, nothing wavering, doesn't mean I have faith God has the answer. It means that in part, but not in full. More than anything, it means I believe God's answer is right and I'm going to do it. Right? That's what he goes on to say, right? For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven by the wind and tossed. So if what I'm doing is I'm going, God, I think this may be a Gibeonite. Would you show me and let me know if this is a Gibeonite? But I've been talking to Michael and he thinks it's not a Gibeonite. So you, you tell me what you think and I'll weigh that against what Michael thinks and I'll make my own decision. That is, that's what he means by not in faith and wavering. We're, we're going between two minds. We're tossed. We're over here and we're over there. Our mind is divided. Well, I might do what God wants, but oh, I don't know. I might not. James says, let not that person think they will receive anything from the Lord. You see, God doesn't give advice. Right? He, he's not dear Sally. God gives command because he is the Lord God of heaven. He doesn't say, well, here's what I think. And you kind of rationalize out on your own. You ask some other people and you weigh mine among theirs. He's, he's, not, he's not that person. He is the omniscient, omnipotent creator and sustainer and redeemer of all. He says, this is what's right. Do it. And it's not a suggestion and it's not, a, it's not an idea. It's not advice. It is a command. Do this. And if God, we go to God and we're like, I might do what you say, but I might not. We should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Now, some will say that's harsh. I can't believe God would be like that. But aren't we kind of like that at times? Do you have people in your life that ask for your advice and when you give the advice they do something else no matter what it is? No matter how, how much it's something you know about. No matter how much you, you, ha- you mean you know. You, this is an area of your expertise and you say, this is the right thing, this is the wrong thing. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I see. You know so much more about this than I do. I know nothing about it. I think it's this over here. And then they blow up. And then they come back and they do it again. And again, isn't there a point where we just say, you're going to do whatever you want to do anyway. Why would God not be that way? Why would the Lord God of heaven give us advice if we're not going to take it? Why would He waste His time showing us what's right if we're just going to reject it and do our own thing anyway? If we want to seek God for wisdom, we must determine whatever God says is what I'm going to do, no matter what that is. No matter how hard it is, no matter how much I don't agree with it, no matter how much I don't like it, I'm going to do what God says to do. And if that's not our attitude, we shouldn't be surprised if God does not answer our prayer for guidance. God does not want us to be deceived. Jesus came so we could be set free. He is the truth. He has brought the truth. We have the truth. God does not want us to be deceived. He has a path for us to move forward following Him. And the detours the Gibeonites are bringing are not God's detours. 
God has a path for us forward and it's forward. It's not the halting and the stopping and the not able to do it that the Gibeonites will bring into our life if we embrace their deception. God has a way forward in our life and it's not the way that brings terrible negative consequences into our life that will happen if we follow the Gibeonites and their deception. If we don't want to be deceived, then what we have to do is know the truth and do the truth and seek God for wisdom knowing God absolutely wants what's best for us. I want to end though with a a positive postscript to the story. Because at times probably we've all been deceived by giving up in one way or another. And we wonder, I'm in a rut the Gibeonites led me into. Can I ever get out? And many, many years later, in the book of Nehemiah, there are two lists of Jewish exiles who are back in Jerusalem, who are building the wall, working. And in two different occasions, it tells us they are Gibeonites. And what we learn is they have been fully assimilated into the Jewish culture. And they are believers in Israel's God. Just as much so as Rahab was. And they are serving and doing the will of God. This doesn't mean believing a Gibeonite and embracing their compromise is something acceptable to God. It's not. What this shows us is the greatness of our God who can work all things for our good and for His glory. Our mistakes, our deceptions, our disobedience can be taken by the great and the awesome God of the Bible and they can be redeemed. And they can be used for our good They can be used for His glory. They can be used to advance His kingdom. Because our God is a Redeemer. And our God is a Restorer. He can redeem your mistakes and mine. And He can use them for our good and for His glory. He can restore us in our relationship with Him. He can move us back onto the right path so we can move forward following Him. The blood of Jesus is strong enough to cover every sin and every failure we've ever committed or ever will commit, even that of being deceived by the Gibeonite and taking a detour, even if it brought terrible consequences into our lives. The question is, will we come to Jesus so God can redeem and restore us? Will we heed His call, seek Him out? Will we in some ways, almost allow Him to redeem and restore us. This morning, if you have followed the path of the Gibeonite, the Almighty God is saying, come. Come and be redeemed. Come and be restored. Come, get back on the right path. Come, let's move forward following Jesus all over again. God is greater than the Gibeonites. The blood of Christ is stronger than their deceptions. Will you come? Let's stand as our musicians come forward.